Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Now, here's the host of WP Tonic, Jonathan Dinwood and John Locke. Welcome to WP Tonic, episode 202. Today, we've got the pleasure of having as our guest, the author of the Win Without Pitching Manifesto, Blair Ends. Also, I want to introduce my uh, uh, co-host, Jonathan Denwood. Oh, thank- hi there, folks. For those who don't know you, Blair, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background in consulting? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm fond of saying I'm a recovering consultant. I spent... Um, 15 years or so being a business development consultant to the creative professions. And about three or four years ago, we uh, made the shift from a solo consulting practice to a scaled and scalable and scaled training company. So we, uh, we do uh, win without pitching is the, is the business. It used to be a business development consulting consultancy, and now it's a training program for creative entrepreneurs and their team sales, um, primarily sales training. Very good. Um, you know, for a lot of our audience, they're, you know, smaller agencies, consultants. And one of the things that's of prime importance to them is, is getting more clients or getting more work in the door. And one of the things that you talk about is, is kind of like a, a four-point plan for getting the inside track or winning without pitching. And can you describe just uh, for the audience you know, the, the, the four priorities in, in the win without pitching. Yeah. So uh, first of all, like winning without pitching is, um, I think, you know, I've been accused over the years of uh, some people saying, well, it's a, um, that's an idea. I'm selling a fantasy, this idea that you can win without pitching. Um, I like to say, and it's not a fantasy. It's uh, there are you know lots of firms around the world who've uh, who don't free pitch, um, and but I see free pitching as kind of part of is a symptom of a larger problem. So let's just just getting back to your question, the framework or the four priorities of winning new business are first, if you can, to win without pitching. And so what I mean by win without pitching is. You win the business before it gets to a defined selection process where you are asked, um, you're lined up against your peers in an apples to apples comparison where the, the, the process is designed to make you, you know, to compare, uh, to make you as similar as possible and then can compare the few remaining differences like price. So, and, and in a, such a scenario, you're asked directly or it's implied that it's in your best interest to give your thinking away for free. So I, Priority number one is try to win the business, however you can do that, and there's lots of different ways you can do it, before it gets to that stage. Um, Often, um, opportunities come to you with the defined selection process in place, and you're not able to win without pitching. So your second priority is to try to derail the pitch, to try to get the client to take their, um, I'm fond of saying, arduous, often ridiculous selection process, put it aside and take an alternative first step with you. So get them to see that, you know, the way you're going about this probably isn't the best way to hire a creative firm. Why don't we do this instead? And that, you know, this, this typically means 
um, breaking up the sale into smaller steps and taking kind of a low risk first step with the firm. So that's the second priority. So if you can't win without pitching, the second priority is to try to derail the pitch. And I think that's where most of the fun is when you can, and there's some firms out there that think um, it can't be done. I've seen it done hundreds of times. And that's where, that's when you're having the most fun as a business development person is when some, uh, an opportunity comes to you, there's a defined selection process and you're able to get the client to put that aside. The third priority, if you cannot win without pitching, you cannot derail the pitch. The third priority is to try to get the inside track. And um, you should assume in any competitive situation where you are being compared against other firms that somebody has the inside inside track. Somebody always has the inside track. It's not entirely true, but that should be your default assumption. So we tend to think that if there are four firms in a competitive situation, then our odds of winning are, you know, one over four, one over N, N being the number of firms under consideration. And that's not true. If you do not have the inside track, then you can assume that somebody else does have the inside track. And your odds of winning are probably more like one over two N. So if there's four firms under consideration and you don't have the inside track, I would suggest your, in, your odds of winning are probably closer to 10% and not 25%. And if you do have the inside track, then your odds of winning are uh, probably significantly better than 25%. And there's, there's a little bit of data. I've done so, some kind of... Um, rough surveys on that. And I know there's another study out of the UK uh, done in the legal profession that shows the same thing. So gaining the inside track, essentially, how do you know you have the inside track? You, um, you get the client to grant concessions to you, to treat you differently. That means that you need to push back and you need to ask for concessions and not be the polite, compliant rule follower. And then the fourth priority, if you cannot win without pitching, you cannot derail the pitch, you cannot gain the inside track. The fourth priority is to walk away to preserve your integrity, to preserve future business opportunities with that client, to be the one that they couldn't have. And it doesn't mean you're not going to do business with them. You should take a long-term approach, approach, but just to walk away from that opportunity. And sometimes walking away from the opportunity is the best way to win the opportunity. No, I think that's great. And, you know, going down the, the, the priorities uh, in this win without pitching, the, the first one is is to you know be the obvious choice you know what role does positioning play because you talked about being in an apples and apples comparison, which is what most generalist firms are they and you know I think all of us have been in that situation at least a few times where they line up the firms and and they basically are just comparing by price because they think that everything is all, all firms are the same, but that's not true. Um, you know, what role does positioning play in, in making the choice? Yeah, it, it's everything. It's, or at least it's the beginning. It's the foundation of business development success. Um, I see business development success coming down to four things. It seems it's always in fours, right? So it's positioning, product, process, and personnel. So positioning is, um, I mean, I, I kind of look at it backwards, look at it backwards. Uh, positioning is... Um, uh, the backwards view of it is the claim of expertise that you're making to the marketplace. Really positioning is the client perception of that is how you're seen in the marketplace relative to your competitors. So what kind of, what kind of territory in terms of discipline and market? So what do you do and who do you do it for? Are you staking out 
um, it, so that you can be seen as an expert in that area. And if you're, see, it, it's kind of the, it's the starting point um, because what we call in the creative professions, what we call positioning, the rest of the world calls fundamental business strategy. What's your strategy? There's so many creative firms out there that don't really have a strategy. And there's many different definitions to the word strategy, but I like, um, I think it's Michael Porter's strategy is the answer to the question, what are you going to do to become and remain unique? Right. So that's strategy. That's also positioning. What is it? What are you going to do to become and remain unique? And if you're if you're seen in the marketplace as unique, then you have power in the buy sell relationship. You have power to be able to push back and suggest an alternative path forward, like in the second priority. You, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, second priority, derailing the pitch. And you have power to essentially push back again in the third priority and see if you can't gain the inside track. So actually when you're pushing back, when you're being difficult in the sale, when you're saying, and not, you're not being a jerk about it, but when you're saying, you know, we don't, we don't typically respond to RFPs. We would prefer to take this, we'd prefer to meet with you, talk this through and see if there's a fit as a first step. What you're doing when you're being kind of difficult in that manner is, is you're gauging how much power you really have. You're gauging how different you are seen to be by the client. And if the client allows you the concession, if they decide to go with you on this alternative step, that's a sign that they see you as meaningfully different. It's a sign that they see that there aren't um, numerous alternatives to hiring your firm, which is an indication of how much power you have to kind of win the business, either by derailing the pitch or by gaining the inside track. Boy, that was a long rambling answer. No, there's a couple of things that I want to circle back to with that in which you said, and one thing that you said, and I actually uh, saw a presentation where you talked about this uh, at length is there's a, a lot of people think that if they're compliant to the client that they're going to win business, but they actually win less business. That's like the, the people who challenge or push back a little um, are actually have a higher chance of success. And the other thing that I wanted to, to circle back to is when you talked about who is the power, there's a misconception about what, what gives the client power. And some people think it's money, but you think it's something else. Yeah. Pa power in the buy-sell relationship really comes down to the availability of substitutes in the, in the eyes of the client. So if the client sees that, so if, if I'm, if I'm the agency and I'm pushing back on what I see as a flawed or an arduous selection process, and I say, you know, we don't, we don't respond to RFPs or we don't typically get involved in these things unless we can talk to the people who are making the decisions on hiring a firm. So those, that would be a couple of different examples. Um, if the client responds saying, well, then, well, our process is our process. Therefore we're going to eliminate you from the process. If you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't do the next step as we've laid it out, um, then that's a sign that you don't have power in the relationship, right? So, uh, so sorry, uh, uh, John, I forgot your, the point you're trying to make here, but I'm going off on the, on the power thing again. Yeah. So, so the, so you're seen as, um, uh, the, the source of your power comes from the fact that like if the client says, okay, well, I'll, uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, what do you have? In, okay. We'll, we'll meet with you as an example. Let's say that's your request. The, the reason that they're likely to meet with you is they see that 
if they eliminate you from the process, well, they're going to miss you, right, in simple terms. And if they're not going to miss you and you're being difficult by not agreeing to play by their rules, then they'll just eliminate you and move on. So if the client says, yeah, we're not going to do that. See you later. We'll get another firm to take your place. That's simply because it's what enables them to do that is not the fact that they have the money. What enables them to do that is the fact that in their eyes, they see, they see so many different alternatives to hiring your firm that they don't care if they eliminate you, right? You're interchangeable in their eyes. And that's what we're trying to avoid with positioning. You're trying to build this, this uh, focused firm that has deep expertise that is seen as like having expertise that others do not. So they wouldn't want to eliminate you. You are the prize in the relationship to be won and they wouldn't want to eliminate you. They, they would rather grant you a concession and say, okay, well, we'll treat you a little bit differently because you asked for it and because we don't want you to go away. So that's the source of the power. No, excellent. Excellent. Um, another thing, what you mentioned is a lot of people will try and force you through an RFP process. And that kind of speaks to uh, one of the other things that's on the priority list, which is gaining the inside track. And I think we all can agree, if you're not the one writing the RFP, then someone else is. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes, uh, and I've had clients say this to prospective clients literally, literally and I, I don't recommend it, but I've heard firms say, listen, the only RFPs we respond to are the ones that we help to write. So <laughs> I don't think you want to be that direct about it. But that sentiment is valid where um, often a client might reach out and express interest and you think, oh, this is a great opportunity. And then they let you know, yeah, I'm just gathering some information to write an RFP. So you want to shut that down right away and say, the language I like is we don't typically respond to RFPs. Um, and if they say, well, I ha it's our policy. I have, we have to go to RFP. Then you could say, well, okay, well, if you have to, you have to. We do make exception for exceptions from time to time. Um, can I be of assistance in helping you frame the RFP? And we, every creative firm that I know, every consultant that I know, we've all been on the on the both the winning and losing end of competitive situations where the fix, air quotes, the fix was in, right? Where somebody else, either we helped craft the or frame the RFP or the competitors did and we were always going to win or we were never going to win. It happens all the time, right? And the only mistake is to just be naive and think that it doesn't happen. So if there's an opportunity to affect the RFP by helping to write it, you want to get in there and affect it by helping to write it. No, I think that's great. Um, another thing that, that you talk about is, you know, gaining power and leveraging power. And yeah, can you expand on that? Yeah, I can take the entire win without pitching approach and I can distill it down into those two steps. And the step number one is to gain power in the buy sell relationship. Um, and the second step is to leverage your power to change how your services are bought and sold. And everything we've talked about so far, really, you can put it into one of those two buckets. We gain power through, um, through positioning, through differentiating ourselves, building a highly differentiated, focused business. The reason it needs to be focused is you can't be highly differentiated and broad. You can't be a broad 
specialist. It's an, or, or even a broad expert. That's an oxymoron. So if you want to build specialized expertise, you need to narrow your focus. That narrows the playing field. It narrows the number of clients that you can possibly work with. You need to get your head around that. Um, but then you, you're going to have, uh, typically by building deep expertise, you're going to, to those uh, clients um, to whom you are relevant, you're going to be more relevant. You're going to have, you're going to be seen as more different and therefore you should have more power in the buy-sell relationship. So step one is gain power and you do that primarily through positioning. And then step two is to leverage that power to do these things that I'm talking about, to push back, to create obstacles, to have policies um, so that you can get con concessions granted to you and you can make a better assessment of whether or not this is an opportunity that you should be pursuing. So it's gain power, leverage power. And I'll, I should point out here that there are other words you can substitute for power. Um, I, some people really recoil at that word. It's not a, you're not dominating the client. It's, I refer to new business development in the creative professions as a game. I say it's a game and the game has a name. The name is the polite battle for control. And what you're doing in this, in this pushing and jostling and creating objections and suggesting different ways and you're doing it politely. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to determine is the, does the client see me as meaningfully different to the extent that he's willing to grant me some of these concessions that I'm asking for. Because if I don't get some control, some power or some control, some ability to lead the engagement, if I don't get this before I'm hired, then we're never going to have it in the engagement. And if you want to serve your clients well, and you want to um, have the biggest impact you possibly can on your client's business, then once you're hired, you need to be allowed to lead. You need to be allowed to lead the engagement, bring your expert perspective to bear, your outside viewpoint on the client's situation, what they should do. You need to be able to bring that to bear. You need to be able to lead the engagement. And so the sale is essentially a sample of whether or not the client is willing to let you do that. No, I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, spot on. Uh, one other thing that I want to circle back to what you said is um, a lot of people feel, you know, like we're trying to gain power, we're trying to leverage power in the relationship. And it, winning business is a game. It's a dance. It's a polite battle for control. Uh, of the engagement, as you said, but a lot of people feel guilty um, about it. Um, and then again, uh, you know, when it comes to asking for concessions, uh, when it comes to uh, asking for, for what they're worth or, or charging yeah. a fair value, it, it, we've talked with a lot of people about value pricing. And that's something I want to ask about too, is uh, what is the common misunderstanding about value pricing that, that people are getting wrong? Yeah. So just to touch on your first point, you know, there are, I think, especially designers and those in the creative professions who like they're artists, they're here to create, they decide to build a business and then they get into these sales situations that they didn't really sign up for and they have to, you know, their, their creations are being priced. So it's really, it's really personal, right? Like you, when, when, when you're putting, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to get what you deserve and there's feelings around guilt around, do I really deserve it, et cetera. And I think, um, 
Uh, I've got a book coming out shortly. I, qu I quit talking about the date because I keep missing the date. I'll just say shortly on uh, pricing. It's called Pricing Creativity, um, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And in that book, among like giving very specific advice around, um, around pricing, one of the things I try to do is just have these creative folks who are my audience, just have them understand that they are worth so much more. Um, and if I could just, if I could wave a magic wand and just have people see how valuable their creations are in the world and that the fact that they could, should be standing up for themselves and asking for more, um, I would do that. And I try to do that in the book a little bit. So I think on that point, we need to, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that because I have, somebody gives me a dollar, they have a dollar less. It's kind of a zero sum. If you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about how business works or the economy, it's, there's a tendency to think of uh, business as a zero-sum game. I have a dollar. I'm, I'm taking one from somebody else. And then that's where the notion of giving back in other parts of my life comes in. And both of those are ridiculous notions. The dollar is your reward for creating in excess of a dollar of value for the person who gave you that dollar. So the more dollars you accumulate, that's more validation of excess value that you're creating in the world. And we need to start thinking about that way. Um, on the subject of value pricing, value pricing is, uh, it's, uh, it's where everybody needs to head to. It is the perfect theory. It's difficult uh, for a lot of people in the creative professions to pull off. And there's a bunch of different reasons it's difficult to pull off. Uh, number one, um, let's see, put them in a certain order. I guess the first reason is not everything that, is that comes out of a creative firm is kind of like high value stuff that's of interest to the executives on the client side who are charged with creating future value and are willing to pay for things based on the value created. So some of the things you do, like most of the initial parts of your engagements are high value uh, engagements like that that should be value priced. But as you get further into the engagement, you're doing the more rote tactical implementation work. Some of that stuff, we just need to accept that it's highly commoditized. So it's hard to value price that. So one step, there's an article on my website, winwithoutpitching.com. I think it's called, uh, well, I forget what it's called, but it's about moving towards uh, uh, letting, un letting go of time, uh, of, of selling and tracking time. And in that article, I say, you know what, just start by value pricing the strategic parts of the engagement. And then maybe you can move downstream after that. Another reason value pricing is hard is, I've just alluded to this already, is if you're not dealing with an executive who is charged with creating future value and you're dealing with a middle manager, they're, they're not charged with creating future value. They're charged with like pull, put, um, getting something done on a certain budget, right? So you try to value price somebody who really isn't interested in the creation of future value, that's difficult to do. Uh, the third reason value pricing is hard is um, it takes practice. The value conversation, I'm fond of saying the value conversation is where value pricing theory goes to die because it takes, if you, it takes practice. You have to, uh, you have to kind of reorient your own focus around clients' value. Then you have to walk them through a series of steps and say things like, okay, well, if we did this, what would it be worth to you? And it's not, if you're not, if you don't, if selling doesn't come natural to you, then this value, navigating the value conversation takes some practice. And you can get good at it fairly quickly, but you do have to practice your way through it. 
And my experience has been a lot of people in the creative professions just can't bring themselves to do the real life practice that's required to get good at the value conversation. So there's all kinds of reasons. Value pricing is the nirvana that we should all be heading towards, but there's all kinds of reasons why um, you're probably not going to get, well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of firms won't get there, but that shouldn't stop them. They should keep moving closer and closer to the goal. Head in the direction of value pricing rather than just deciding you're going to value price everything. No, excellent. Uh, we're going to pause for just uh, a few seconds for a break. And then we come back, we're going to be talking more with Blair Enns of the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back from our break and we're talking more with Blair Enns. Uh, right before the commercial, we were talking about value pricing. And in our particular community, which is the WordPress community, a lot of people struggle with... Um, value pricing. And I think a lot of it has to do with the perception of what it is. And I've heard you uh, talk about it as, as focusing on the desired business outcomes of the client. Um, and, and one of the things that I have actually heard you talk about as well is pricing the client and not the job. Um, yeah. So, uh, Beyond desired business outcomes, I would um, I would characterize it as you you are pricing the desired future state of the client, and that goes deeper, uh, cutting to a really important issue of value pricing. In that, we, we, there's a tendency in sales, and I've been guilty of this for years. Offering advice on this is you start with need. Okay, what's the need? And then the client states, "Well, we need a new website." And then you ask five whys after why do you need a new website? Because usually the stated business need is more tactical in nature and you want to get to the fundamental, well, sales are down. You want to get to the fundamental business problem. Um, but there's even something even more uh, powerful than the underlying business need. And that is what, what do you, the individual, want? What do you want? Because value is the, value is entirely subjective. It's entirely in the eye of the beholder. And there's, you know, there are different frameworks for kind of understanding value. And the one that I like is called the um, value triad that says you can take all forms of value and you can put them into three buckets. Two of them are economic. So the first one is revenue gains. So by hiring us to help you build the website or whatever, we're going to help you make more money. The second is cost reductions. We're going to help you save money. And the third one is the big kind of murky personal subjective bucket of emotional contributions to value. So emotional contributions to value include um, if, if the, uh, the client side decision maker, yeah, she might have revenue goals that need, she needs to meet. She might have cost reduction targets that she needs to meet or would benefit from. But then there are the things that she wants, right? She wants to be seen as a star to her boss. She wants to not have to babysit 
the firm that she hires, right? She wants the prestige of working with a well-known awarded firm, right? There are all kinds. So all of these other personal wants fall into the category of emotional contributions to value. And I see those emotional contributions to value as multipliers of the economic forms of value. So you just think of it this way. You've got a typical salesperson who's talking to the client, who's trying to uncover the underlying business need. And then you come along and say to the client, well, what do you want? And what do you want? I mean, yeah, okay, you need a new website that hits these things, but like, let's talk about what you want. And if you can craft an engagement and price it more aligned to what the individual wants, then you are far further ahead than your competitor. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and that comes down to, to another thing. Uh, a lot of agencies, they have to make a choice between whether they're a customized agency or a productized uh, you know, agency. Yeah. That's a big recurring theme. I've just started, started an article yesterday. I've written about this elsewhere. Um, and it, it backs to a point that you alluded to earlier that I skipped over is the idea of price the client versus price the client and not the job or the service. And that's a principle that I got from Ron Baker, Ronald J. Baker, who's written some excellent books on value pricing. He's one of the leaders in value pricing, particularly in the, in the um, professional services. Um, and it's one of his kind of foundational principles. I, I, I don't think I'm overstating that. And I, to me, it's um, in the book that I've got coming out shortly. It is rule number one. I've got a certain set. I've got principles. I've got rules. I've got tips and I've got tools. And it is the first rule. It's always price the client and not the job or the service. And so you see, and the, the reason for that is, um, as we, we've kind of alluded to, because value is so personal, what you would do for client X has different value than even if you did the same thing for client Y, right? So you need to understand what is the desired future state of the client and you need to build the engagement and then price the engagement accordingly around the value that you might create for that client. Now, the productized versus customized thing, it's really interesting um, the article that I just started yesterday is like tentatively titled uh, uh, the uh, negative influence the technology is se sector has had <laughs> got to shorten the title on the creative professions. So it's basically the people in the creative professions, especially the more uh, digital or techno technology based your firm is the tools that you use are the more likely you have an eye on kind of the startup culture of the technology industry and you're probably taking some business cues from these tech firms and some and, and a lot of them are great like uh the importance of culture um uh r&d perhaps you know other things these are all great influences on the creative professions but there's some negative ones and one is that i see all of these uh creative and marketing firms who are kind of tech heavy and tech focused are almost unintentionally, I think, productizing the services in their firm. They're trying to build these scaled productized service businesses. And, and um, without, without like 
thinking deeply about wh whether they should, why they're trying to do that and whether they should. So, so many of them get caught in this kind of mushy middle between a customized services firm where you should have between 10 and 15 ongoing clients at any one time and a completely scaled productized services firm where you can have an infinite number of clients. And what you get is somebody who really should have 10 to 15 clients is in the 30, 40 client range and pursuing more when they would be better off if they would just kind of scale back down, work with fewer clients, go deeper into those client relationships, value price them, and do work and price based on the value that you would create for the clients rather than saying, coming across a new opportunity and saying, okay, we have three different ways to, to help you. Would you like vanilla, strawberry, or a chocolate? And the prices are these three different things. Because as you productize, a productized services firm, like ours is, Win Without Pitching is a training company. So it's completely productized. So we have prices for the different forms of training, right? But when I was a consultant, in theory, I should have value priced everything. And the reality is I didn't. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to move to a training company as I realized I was stuck in the mushy middle. I, I was a consultant. I wasn't value pricing my engagements. I was kind of productizing these things and saying, so if somebody would start to talk to me about their problems and how I could help, I would say, well, there's three different ways I can help you. Would you like vanilla, strawberry, or chocolate? Here are the three different prices. So it's, you know, I was guilty of it. So many firms I see are guilty of it. And I realized I needed to either go one way or another. I needed to become a true value price, a true consultant who value priced his services and went deeper into his clients, or I needed to go the other way and scale up and productize. And given where I live, I live in a remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to travel. Um, I really could only go in one direction. Something that you said is, um, and, 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 and in pricing, the psychology is you always want to have three options and, and your like prestige tier is to kind of force people to the middle option, but where productized agencies perhaps get it wrong is you're putting the options out there before having a value conversation. And in value pricing, you want to do the options after you've had that conversation. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So in a customized services firm, you wouldn't put prices, you, A, you wouldn't put prices on your website, specific prices for different packages. B, you would price it only after, you know, having a value conversation where you're understanding the value that you might deliver to the client. In a productized services firm, you, you would, there's little reason why you wouldn't put prices on your website. We don't, we put pricing guidance. Um, but you can put, look at any software as a service business, right? You've got three or four tiers. Here are the different packages. And there's no value conversation that's had there because the customer base is so large. What these productized services firms do or product companies do is they segment their audience. So they do through various um, analyses. They, uh, they lump their audience together based on the value drivers that are most important to them. And they, so they bundle up and package and price based on an analysis of their market. So, uh, but a customized services firm value pricing really only happens after a value conversation. So you're either doing like proper segmentation or you're having value conversation. So it's, it's one or the other. Jonathan, uh, do you have anything that you would like to ask? Well, um, I think it's been a great conversation. Um, you made me think a lot. Um, what, 
we have a very broad audience for this show. We have very experienced agency owners and we have a lot of people starting off either freelance or starting off running an agency. So I'm going to ask, you know, people starting their agency, listening to this interview, probably fascinated, but thinking this doesn't really apply to me. I've got to just take in um, whatever work comes my way. Have you got any tips or reflection on that kind of individual about if you're in their shoes, how they should be thinking about what you have said in this interview? Yeah, I think it's easier for a small or a young firm to take on the guidance that I'm giving rather than a kind of an older established firm because this, the ship is so small, it's easy to turn. And regardless of the size or age of your firm, I think you, I would like you to think about it this way. You reinvent your firm one new client at a time. So if you buy the, the, the idea that you should have you know, 10 to 15 ongoing clients at one time, um, and then from there, there's some implications that kind of fall out of that. Number one is, well, you don't grow your business by, if, I mean, if I could limit your business to 10 clients, I would. If I had the power, all of my clients are just wave the magic wand and say, you can only serve 10 clients at one time. And if that, if you were limited by that, um, the odds of you succeeding would probably go up because you would now be, um, quite selective about who you worked with. You would say in the sale, um, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to work together unless you're going to spend X with us. And if you wanted to grow the business, then um, every time you brought on a new client, you would have to let go of an old client. So uh, how would you do that? Well, you would make sure that any new client that you brought on was larger in size, revenue and potential profit than the client that you were letting go of. So that's, so if you, if you buy that, the, the idea is that you grow your business through steadily man, so properly managing the steady churn of clients. Clients stick with you two to four years. You're, you should be turning over your client base about 25 to 30% per year. So it's two, three, or four new clients every year. And you just make sure that those each new client that comes in is of a certain size and allows you to go deep enough into the organization, et cetera. And that's how you grow. So it's just <laughs> one new client at a time. That's how you reinvent your firm. And in three to four years, you can be anything, right? So if it takes you three to four years, um, maybe two to four years to turn over your entire client base, so if that's the case, in two to four years, you can be whatever you want to be, as long as the next client that comes in is a step towards whatever your strategic vision or strategic target is. And if it isn't, then if you're just taking whatever comes in, I granted in the early days, maybe you have to do some of that for cash flow reasons. And you might even have to get out and pitch some business or discount heavily or even work for free in the beginning to get some to, get, to build the portfolio. Yeah, all of those things are valid. But at some point, you need to have a strategic vision of where you're going and you need to make sure that every new client that you bring in gets you uh, towards one step towards that strategic vision. At the very least, it doesn't take you off in some other direction. From time to time, you're going to, you know, it's like everybody has to prostitute themselves from time to time. From time to time, something's going to come along and you're going to do it for the money. That's fine. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. I think what you're saying is you it's like a vacuum, isn't it? You know, any vacuum in your personal life, any vacuum in your philosophies, vacuum in your business, if you don't fill it with your own targets, it's gonna be filled from the outside, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I'll go back to John. Go on, John. Um last question is is uh, one thing that you talk about in your book is is making the hard decision, and that is what type of clients you're going to serve and, and what kind of stake in the ground you're going to put your agency around. Why do so many generalist firms hesitate to make the hard decision, and what impact does making that decision have on their agency? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's uh, you know, poorly positioned firms. It's not the kind of the – Creative firms don't have the monopoly on poorly positioned me too firms, but there seems to be so many more in the creative professions. And it really stems from what it means to be creative because a creative mind, a creative personality is drawn to the problem that it hasn't previously solved. A creative person is constantly drawn. They want to do things they haven't done before because that's the the essence of creativity, and so there, there are arguments against this. Other people say there are different forms of creativity, and that's valid, but I, I go by what Mahai Csikszentmihalyi, the author of um, uh, Flow, uh, Flow and Creativity. So he coined the, he coined the, um, the term flow or flow state. I, I go by his definition, which is creativity is the ability to see, the ability to bring perspective, new perspective to old problems. So the ability to see around corners. So if, if that's your strength as an individual, then you are constantly looking for new problems to solve, right? And, and there's a tendency to kind of build your business around uh, in a way that lets you get those, your personal need for variety. So there's a, there's a resistance to focus because you have this personal desire to, for variety and it's directly at odds with your business's need to focus. So that's kind of the core reason why there are so many poorly positioned creative firms. Excellent. Excellent. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. I think our listeners got a ton of value out of this. Uh, Blair, is there anything that you would like us to check out and where can we find you online? You can find me at winwithoutpitching.com where you can learn about our training program. And if you sign up for our uh, email update, our newsletter, um, you'll get something when my next book comes out, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And thank you, John. And thanks, Jonathan. I've really appreciated uh, doing this. Oh, it's been great. You've um, covered some deep subjects, though. But I, I think it's well worth listening to the episode and really thinking what Blair's saying. Because like I say, just going, the time goes quick, doesn't it? And the vacuum, if there's no real strategy, the vacuum is filled from the outside, not from the inside. Nope. Amen. For real. Uh, Jonathan, how do we get a hold of you? Oh, it's quite easy, folks. You can get me on Twitter at Jonathan Denwood. Um, Twitter me with any kind of input, what you like on the show, what you don't. That's great. You can email me at Jonathan at WP-tonic.com. Same stuff. Love you to um, 
tell us what people you like us to have on the show, what subjects you like us to, to discuss. And please give us a review on iTunes. We say it every week. We love to get some more people giving us some reviews. It's the one way that you can really help the show is give us a review. Definitely. Uh, and if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me at my website, lockdowndesign.com, or follow me on Twitter, lockdown underscore. For the WP Tonic, we're saying peace out and get your dose. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.